So we're really trying to disrupt the uh, existing brokerage market. When we raised the money, it was such so early days. We just launched the application. We had, uh, you know, I think by that time, like 50,000 clients roughly. First of all, you st it starts with just acquiring these customers and building that first time relationship with those customers. And for that, you need to become top of mind. My guest today is Jorik Naif, who is the CEO of Books. With over 700,000 clients, Books is Europe's fastest growing neo broker. On the show today, York tells me how Books is scaling and hiring across Europe. We talk about the importance of building a great support team. York tells me why competition can be a good thing for your audience. And we talk about the recent round of 80 million funding, which brings the total funding to over 115.8 million. I'm your host, Mark McDonough, and this is the UKTN podcast. Our sponsors of the show, Uncapped, believe it's crazy that for e-commerce businesses to fund growth through marketing, infantry or hiring, they have to sell equity to VCs, especially when they know they'll make that money back right away. Uncap solved that problem. Already helping over 500 businesses worldwide, they offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales, no dilution or loss of control. Founders simply apply online, receive a decision within 24 hours and make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue. Head to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN to find out more. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10. That's UKTN10. Now let's get into the show. I thought it might be nice to start um, with the conversation around you now being the CEO of Books because you weren't the CEO before, you were actually the COO. You're one of the early employees and I think you were also around for one of the co-founders as well but it'd be interesting to hear how you be, obviously became the CEO because Nick has has taken a, a step down and, that, and now you're act, acting as CMO for books yeah correct CEO I should say yeah <clears throat> you're, you're completely right I mean uh, I uh, I took over from Nick officially in April 2021 uh, but unofficially we already started the transition actually in May 2020. So actually we're, we're 11 months already busy with a proper handover. And the reason is actually that, look, when you start, I've got a background in the, like also in the corporate world, right? I worked for, for five years plus for a very large bank and I was working in strategy consulting for a while and you know, so I've, I've seen significantly larger companies. And I think at some point, the company box also became quite sizable. And Nick is a, a visionary person. He, he has good ideas. Um, you know, he's very creative. Um, and I'm the person that normally makes the translation from ideation to actual practice. Um, and therefore, you know, at some point, the role of ideation becomes less important because you have built all the building blocks, right? You are already a sophisticated company with a good revenue stream and a large customer base. And then it's about execution um, and further professionalizing the firm. And that's where I'm good at. So at some point we had a discussion and, and Nick said, look, I think uh, it's time for me to take a next step. I just noticed that my added value of the firm is, is limited in comparison to yours. Why don't you take over from me? Um, and it was a short conversation and 
the, the longer part of the conversation was actually around how to actually do that, right? Because uh, that's, that's complex. But being COO before, actually since the beginning, means that I was already responsible for such a large chunk of the organization that it actually went quite smooth. It's a big move because a lot of a lot of the time you'll find that some CEOs are so attached to the company because they founded it and, you know, they really want to, you know, drive the company forward. And it's it's a big step when they realize that, hey, maybe I might not be the person to grow this company as much as I think the company can grow too. Did you consider bringing someone in from from the outside or or was this always something that you were being groomed to take over from as such? Well, I think, uh, look, I don't know what, what happened behind the scenes. I can only see or tell you what I've seen myself and, and you know, what discussions I was involved with. Um, sure, look, it, it's possible that, that, you know, especially the board and the investors have been looking outside as well. I just don't know. I think that I did have the feeling that, that I was groomed a little bit because while Box was growing, I was getting more and more, like, my responsibilities were getting bigger and bigger, right? So teams were basically placed one by one uh, underneath me, right? So my responsibilities for those teams just increased further and further. And at some point, I think in 2020, uh, uh, Nick was actually mostly responsible for just, you know, everything client facing. So more marketing and the rest was already pretty much under my wing. And so I knew this, this was coming and this, this is not something that, it's just going overnight, right? It's it's a uh, it's a thing that that gradually is happening, and because we were making those moves already, I think it was quite logical that that I took over, um, and especially if you are dealing with a company that's complex as ours, with different product lines, with regulation, compliance, uh, different countries, right? Different offices as well, different cultures even. It's actually powerful to have somebody in-house to, to take over because hiring somebody externally, it's before that person can actually be as productive as a person internally, it just takes so much time. And that's time you often don't have, uh, especially in a fast scale-up environment, right? So I think uh, it's safe to say that uh, probably that discussion has been taking place, but not that I'm aware of. I, I take it Nick is still involved in the company. Like he still has input on it, or or is he taking a complete another step back? Well, he's in the non-executive board, right? So it's right, founder. Okay. Uh, so he's still involved on pretty much on a monthly basis. I still have regular catch-ups with him. I mean, look, I consider Nick a friend of mine. So of course, I'm still in contact, and I tell him how things are going. And I, I of course want to pick his brain on certain things, and he still comes up with great ideas. Um, so no, he's, he's, he's very much still involved, but more on the background and not in an execution role. And um, books have raised a, a huge amount of money. You've raised about a hundred and and 15.8 million is what I have down dollar or sorry. Yeah. 115.8 million dollars. And your most recent round was, was 80 million, uh, which happened in April of 2021. And you wanted to use that for growth and expansion. Where are you, where are you planning or where did you spend some of the money? Cause I'm just interested in how you're growing it, how you're scaling the business. Yeah. So we have um, launched a, uh, a mid to long-term investment proposition uh, in September, 2019. Um, and we, we hard launched that product actually only in January, 2020. 
And the focus was really on that specific product, right? So uh, also the, the entire race effectively was tailored towards really bringing that product to the next level. And that's a, a zero commission investing proposition where you can invest in, in cash equity, ETFs, now also cryptocurrencies against zero commission. So we're really trying to disrupt the uh, existing brokerage market because frankly speaking, I still think it's, it's if you look at the traditional brokerage, it's extremely expensive uh, costs you don't really have to pay as a customer. And, um, you know, we found investors that believed in that. So the, the, the money was spent twofold. Uh, first, on just bringing the product to the next level, because when we raised the money, it was such so early days. We just launched the application. We had, uh, you know, I think by that time, like 50,000 clients roughly. Um, but we had plans, of course, to, to grow the, the company towards millions of customers. And to do that, you have to bring the product really to the next level. It has to be strong. It has to be sophisticated. It needs to be professional, safe, everything. So a lot of focus has been uh, uh, going towards really bringing that product to the next level. Second, we've been focusing on like geographical expansion. We really wanted to make sure that um, with the technology that we've built, we want to offer you know, accessibility, affordability, and intuitiveness in brokerage to all the European countries. So we really stepped on the gas quite early to, to already start launching in multiple European countries to start learning, right, on what works, what does not work for people. Um, also gathering feedback to see, okay, what can we tailor and change to make sure that it fits in the local markets. And the only way to properly do that is by launching your product in a very early stage um, so that you basically grow with your customer base inside those countries. So that's what we've done. Uh, I think now, you know, we have around 700,000 clients. So we've grown quite significantly. And look, uh, I think uh, we're still we're still at the beginning. Yeah, because like when I interview founders, I normally find that there's a number of things that they they struggle with number one is is sales and marketing followed by scaling followed by funding followed by hr growth and um, when it comes to to marketing books how have you found how have you found that in general and where is the the, the extra money that you've raised where is that allowing you really double down on things that are working for you yeah look once you have product market fit right the focus will shift from creating a good product towards marketing and operations. Uh, you just need to make sure that people are aware of, of your products and that people are, well, trusting your product, right? They stay with you. You build some kind of connection with them. And therefore, marketing operations is, is so important. First of all, you, it starts with just acquiring these customers and building that first-time relationship with those customers. And for that, you need to become top of mind. And you need to do that on a market per market basis. Like if you are very well known in the UK, it doesn't mean anything in Germany, for example, right? And yeah. if you're well known in Germany, then it doesn't mean anything in France. So you have to start from scratch in every single market. And therefore, this is one of the reasons, like I just said, right, that, that you want to launch early because you want to start seeing what works in those markets. And it's very interesting. We already noticed that, what works in, in France does not work in Germany and vice versa. You really have to 
change your approach completely in order to become successful in those markets. And so from a marketing perspective, we have multiple marketing channels that we use and we measure everything end to end. So basically, if we go to a market, we start with performance marketing so we can see exactly, okay, how does the funnel operate? How good does it work? Where do we see drop off? Where can we spend the right amounts of money in order to optimize that? And how can we improve conversion rates while we go? And based on, you know, looking at the entire funnel end to end, you're trying to create a approach per market that works. And then you're going to keep tailoring, right? You're going to keep A-B testing and just looking at the statistics, you're going to make the necessary adjustments. And at some point you see that unit economics are really, really healthy. And then you start firing away, right? Then it's when you increase the efforts. And that's what we've done in a number of European markets already quite successfully. Uh, and that's, with that approach, you want to eventually, of course, conquer the entire European landscape. You're obviously growing the team and expanding across Europe. And one of the difficult things about expanding across Europe is the, the language barrier that you come up against. You know, like you've, you've got France and Spain and Germany, all different speaking, or, or different language countries. So when you're growing the team, it's not just um, expanding the current team in the current location where you are. You now have to consider employing people in different countries to bring that to the table as well. Have you found that difficult? And is that one of the reasons why expanding across Europe can be so hard? No, it is It is tough. And I'll tell you why. It's not just a language barrier, right? It goes a lot further than that. Um, language is just one aspect. It's also cultural differences. It's the way people deal with their capital and savings, right? It's... It's, it's even tax uh, regulations. Like there's so many differences across the different countries. And we actually started the whole journey with hiring like people in our head office, right? So basically hire, hire Spanish people and French people in our London or Amsterdam offices. And that worked quite okay in the beginning, um, right? Because then you're still in the testing phase. But the moment that you want to scale inside those countries significantly, you need to have, have people on the ground because those people can actually feel, right? What works, what does not work, what the actual feedback is of people. They talk to journalists, they talk to, to the press. You know, there's a lot of other stuff that, that you know, you just miss if you're doing it from, from a centralized place. Um, so, and, you know, and in the end, we're all in this, in this, in a, it's, it's a people business, right? Yeah. The, the, the success that you have in any country is dependent on the local talent that you can hire as well. So that is the toughest thing, finding you know, good, talented people that understand the, the local requirements and local cultures in such a way that you can be successful in that country. So would your advice there to anyone listening who is thinking of scaling across multiple countries um, is to have people on the ground where possible? Yes, 100%. Eventually, you, you can't go without. Um, look, it's also dependent on what the type of business, right? Some people have a B2B approach. And yeah, then obviously you are dealing with probably also international companies inside those markets then it will be fine to, to operate everything from a centralized approach. But once you have a B2C product like we do, then you need to understand the end consumer in such a way that you cannot go without having local people on the ground. 
Yeah, of course. And you you mentioned there as well, you've got over 700,000 users. Like, how, how do you grow on that? Because like, how, how long did it take you to to really see the scale in, in growing that number? Um, and I'm, I'm just interested in like, because a lot of companies kind of hit a brick wall. You know, they've gotten to a, a certain growth that they know how to get to or they've been able to, to grow the company too, but they don't know how to break through a certain threshold, you know, or a certain number. Like, how do you how do you actually grow on that? So like, how, how are you going to grow on the, on the 700,000 users? Look, in the end, um, we, when we founded the company, we already had the vision, right, to, to, to eventually offer this type of solution to millions. And it's actually funny because uh, it all starts already with the technology that you build. Um, because in the end, you know, technology can only bring you so far if you're not able to significantly scale. And we have a, a very interesting uh, approach. Uh, actually, and I can actually share that as well. Uh, if you look at the architecture of our technology, there isn't a component in there that comes from a messaging background. Um, and that's actually quite uh, interesting because messaging is in a way quite similar to financial services because everything is event-driven. So every market price, every trade that you do, every order that you send is actually an event. It's like a message. And therefore, if you approach it like a messaging uh, architecture, then you can increase the, the scalability of your system significantly because these messaging systems, they operate in such a way that millions and millions of messages are being sent in a very short time frame, and it's all real time. So we did basically the same. Uh, so that's where it started. Next to that, I think the, the, the biggest issue that we were facing during our scale-up and, and during the, the growth that we've accomplished right now was how can we support it with human capital, right? How can we make sure that there is enough support for people that, you know, if something goes wrong, for example, and they're contacting customer support, are there enough people to help them out, for example? And with that, it's all the decisions that you make with regards to automation, uh, making sure that, you know, you have sophisticated processes and procedures in place. And, you know, we don't have any legacy. So that's actually where we can thrive. Um, and just making sure that you make those decisions in a very early stage will break away those glass ceilings and those, those further bottlenecks to significantly scale further. And actually, if you look at it now, we're already now ready for millions of customers if you want, um, just because the systems are already capable to do so. It's an important point you make there because you I, I've seen it myself with some companies that I've used in the past that at, at the early stage, the customer support is so good because there's so few people on on the platform. And as it grows and as it scales, as you said, if it doesn't grow the human support side of things, um, that starts suffering. So it really kind of comes down to, to customer support. There's a lot happening in, in this space for sure. Right, and you you see a lot of companies co- coming into into what you guys are covering. Like there's there's eToro that have been been around for for quite some time. That I think that runs in two thousand and seven. Um, but you've got companies like Free Trade who have raised over one hundred and seven million. Uh, you've got Shares, a new company. They they're an interesting one because they launched with with ten million. Um, before they launched, they'd raised ten million, and then the month that they launched. 
they made an announcement that they've just closed a round of 30 million, which has given them a massive catapult into being able to expand. Now, I think they're only in the UK at the moment. I could be wrong on that. Um, no, you're right. You've got that. They're running the UK, okay. Um, and then you've also got the likes of, of Revolut to an extent who, who are who are a competitor because you know you 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 bank with them and you save with them and all of a sudden now you're able to trade with them. Do you think that is is good for the likes of you? Because when I asked the same question to the founder of eToro um two years ago, he, he gave me an answer. I'll go into it in a second, but I'd be curious to hear yours first. Um when when others are doing this, is it good for the market? Or do you think it's 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 right? We need to land and expand and, and get the brand out there a lot quicker and a lot faster. A quick sponsor reminder. If you're looking to fund growth without having to give away equity, Uncap solved this problem. To find out more, go to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10. That's UKTN10. Yeah, the answer is twofold. I don't know how Yoni uh, answered the question, but uh, uh, on the one hand, it's good. On the other hand, it's bad. Uh, and now uh, it sounds very political, but I'll explain you a little bit what I mean. On the one hand, it's good because all these companies help shape the market, right? Help create a market. Um, look, let's just look at the macroeconomic situation right now, right? Interest rates are at all times lows. Uh, pension systems are in many countries are like a, a very unstable. Um, you've got the gig economy. You've got high house prices that are sky, have skyrocketed, and you've got high inflation yeah. now. So many aspects where if you as a customer would just keep your money on your savings account with your bank, you will lose money. Right? Inflation is higher than the rate that you get on your savings account. You are effectively losing money. So people need to take matters into their own hands. They have to take control themselves and especially the younger generation because that's the generation that's worse off than any generation before because of this. So because they need to take matters into their own hands, you know, it doesn't mean that they actually will. They have to understand that this is a need, right? They have to be educated. And all these firms that are now providing access to the financial markets in any way, shape, or form, help create that access and therefore help create the markets because all of a sudden there's a lot of awareness of people that, are, well, that need to do this. So that's the one side. On the other hand, it's getting cluttered, right? It's getting busy. Uh, more com- competition means a stronger division of market shares. And... That's also just a fact. So the more companies are present in the UK with this accessible approach towards financial services, the more difficult it is to get a larger share yourself as a firm. Um, and more competition also means that it's driving up prices in the auction for performance marketing, for example, um, also for other media advertising like above the line campaigns, like all those kind of things. So from that perspective, it's not good. So yeah, that's that's the, the simple answer. My own feeling is that obviously, you know, there's a huge amount of people at the moment that are still completely uneducated, still unaware of, you know, the fact that they're losing money, but they still got access capital. And that's for me, is almost like a blue ocean. And as long as that's the size of that ocean is still so big, it's sure. 
more and more companies will dive into it. We will as well. Um, and we'll be able to capture a fair share. It's not too dissimilar to what, what he had been saying to me in the past as well, which was, you know, if others are doing it, it's it's educating the market that things are available and things things are, are out there that you can trade in this particular way. Um, and again, like every company, you know, you're, you're fighting for a space that everyone wants a, a piece of the market. You had mentioned there um, housing price or the housing market being too expensive and interest rates being low, which we all know. And I know that your average customer is, is around the age of 30. Is that, are, are you looking to to keep it around that or are you looking to expand on, on the user age as such? Well, I mean, Look, first and foremost, the, the reason why, you know, I mentioned house prices here is because for many people, house prices are their pension. Um, and look, of course, our average age is now 30, but we're growing up as well, right? So our customer base is quite sizable. They're getting older, right? So it all automatically means that in two years time, our average age, if we don't acquire new customers, will be 32. Um, but obviously, at the same time, we are still acquiring new customers, but it's normally around the same age range as we currently have. Um, so I'm still expecting mostly millennials and Gen Z people to come on board. And did that those two generations will eventually also grow a little bit older. So I think there is a, a slow increase in the age. That being said, we also notice already that in our mature markets, the markets where we are already quite sizable, the average age is creeping up a little bit faster than in other markets. And the reason is that uh, adoption always uh, happens at a younger age faster. So, you know, you, for example, have a son and your son is, is investing with bucks um, and is showing their, their father. Their father is investing with a traditional bank, paying ridiculous amounts of fees and commissions. And, well, the son educates the father almost. And that happens more and more. Uh, you see it not just in brokers, but in other like tech firms as well, uh, B2C tech firms. And we also see it. So the age will creep up eventually and more and more. Um, but I think, you know, we're still really focused on that millennial and Gen Z generation and we'll stay focused on that generation for the foreseeable future. Yeah, well, for, for, uh, you see it as well. Like I've introduced my, my parents even to the likes of Revolut uh, and, and other go. options yeah. out there. And again, that, that came from someone younger, obviously introducing them. Um, can I ask you when it comes to uh, marketing? Because you see a lot of companies that are in the same position, a position as you, where they offer either a free trade or they'll offer you something like £20, £25 if you introduce a friend. Do you find that they work? And the reason I ask that is because if so, if you're giving someone a free trade, do you find that someone might come in, take a trade, uh, and they'll leave, leave that trade open and they, they might not spend any more money with you? So now you're kind of fighting to get them to, to actually use use books for argument's sake. I don't know what you do, if you do any promotions like that. Have you tried any in the past? Yeah, no, we do. We, do. we uh, give away like a free share, for example, if you invite a friend and then you and your friend gets, uh, gets a free share. Um, look, we do that also for people to get, to hit the ground running. Um, we noticed also in our research that, you know, for many people, like more than 50% of our customers are new to investing, right? 
So it's scary. Um, it's, it's something that they haven't done before. And you can help educate them by providing information and, and financial literacy, sure. Uh, and that goes, you know, quite far. And, and people still, you know, they read our knowledge centers and, and, and they go through our learning courses and watch our videos. But the biggest bulk of people, they're too lazy to really get into, you know, do the extra efforts to read into all these things. And therefore, they just think, well, I'll just try it. But then buying something, what, what, what should I buy, right? What is, yeah. How do I start? And therefore, by providing that free share, it not only creates an incentive, but it also creates a retention vehicle almost where people are already invested and started their portfolio already. And there, therefore, it works quite well. Uh, you are right that we also see customers that, you know, they just get the free share, sometimes sell it and, and, and you know, withdraw their money. But to be completely honest, then the product is not for them anyway. Um, that, you know, if, if people, you know, still they have, you know, funded the accounts and, and they have, you know, done going, going through the effort of creating an account. But if for some people, you know, they're fine with just keeping their savings account. They, they don't think that investing is going to help them or add any value. I would often disagree because I think it's important for people to start educating themselves. But for some people, it just doesn't work. And then the product's not for them, which is fine as well. There are always customers like that, and it's part of the cost of acquisition. Yeah, and, and it's funny you say that because there's there's educating and then there's financial advice. And I know what you're providing isn't financial advice, and, and people need Correct. to be very, very aware of that. How how do you get around that? Because like there is you want you obviously have some sort of responsibility to be able to help your community and point them in the right direction and explain why some things are up and some things are down. How do you get around that when you know, it's not actually financial advice you're providing. It's more of a an education piece. Yeah, so there are, of course, like financial advice is very specific. Yeah, so based on your personal circumstances, I'm going to look at your goals. And based on that, I'm going to basically provide you with an advice to build a portfolio. To be honest, I think the role of that going forward is getting less and less. I think it's it, it, it might fit well with a person that, you know, uh, as a successful entrepreneur, uh, made millions and millions and really wants to diversify his portfolio. And, you know, then financial advice makes sense. But for the more, more common person uh, that wants to start investing, I, I think that financial advice is, is, is not necessary because there is already an approach with regards to financial services that works really, really well. And you can just share what that approach is, right? It's dollar cost averaging. Create a well-diversified portfolio and deposit a fixed amount of money on a, in a, on a periodic basis, maybe you know, once a month, for example, and spread that out over across that that well-diversified portfolio and do that on a recurring basis for, for, for years and years to come. So you take out the timing effect and that, that historically has always shown to be a very good way of, of investing. And that is perfectly fine to share that to your customers, right? And educate them on. That's what we're also trying to do. And especially with ETFs, I mean, they're on the rise uh, significantly. You've got ETFs nowadays that are basically completely mimicking a robo-advisory product. 
So for for ninety five percent of the people, that is already by far the best way to start the investment journey. It's low cost. It's accessible. It's simple. And it just requires a little bit of effort to set things up. Uh, and that's perfectly fine as a self-directed broker. You don't have to provide advice in order to provide that type of service. Did the 115.8 million that you raised, was any of that crowdfunding? Yeah. It was. How much did you raise from crowdfunding? I think a few million, two million or something like that on Cedars. Yeah. Because I always find it interesting. Yeah, I always find it interesting with companies like Books. You know, Free Trade have have done a lot of of crowdfunding, and by by crowdfunding, straight away they're growing their investment community, and by growing their investment community, straight away they're hopefully growing their user community as well. And I know when it comes to crowdfunding, you are limited on how much. Like if you're looking to raise the eighty million, which you raised there recently. Um, you're probably not going to hit that from if you were to go down the route of crowdfunding. Is is crowdfunding a route that you think Books will take to number one grow its investment community, but also in- instantly growing your user community as well for for a new market for argument's sake? Well, that's actually the reason we did it, uh, Mark. I mean, we we still believe in uh, an external validation of of your market value, and that's. It's best for, for that to come from an institutional investor. Um, but look, on the back of that, we do believe in the investment community. And we also have an investment community that's quite sizable. So because we received so much feedback from that investment community to be able to participate, to be able to invest in Bucks as well, we said, look, uh, we'll open up a crowdfunding campaign. We'll do it at the exact same valuation as we just raised the previous round back then, I think this was 2017 when we did a round with HV Capital, uh, top tier German VC. And, you know, we, we opened up the doors for just over a million. I think we got oversubscribed quite significantly um, just because we wanted to give our community access to owning a piece of box as well. Uh, and the valuation is actually already verified, right? We have already the external validation from a sophisticated uh, uh, venture capital firm. So for for customers, that's also a good, you know, signal like, okay, you know, the valuation is more than fair because that institution also stepped in at that price. I still believe that, that that's strong. Um, at the same time, it's... Um, it's also creating a lot of overhead and additional burden on the company to, to do that. Uh, but I'm actually quite enthusiastic. So if we'll do a new round, then I'm happy to to look at it again. The type of company you're in is such a community-driven business. Um, and I know there's a lot of listeners listening to the show now that are trying to build and engage with a community. What have you found works best? Because there's so many different ways you can do it. A lot of companies will build a community on social media. Some people will use the likes of Facebook groups. Other people will use forums. What what has really worked for, for you? Yeah, so what worked for us was, uh, of course, in one of our applications we had in, well, we had a chat functionality. Uh, people could create channels, for example. They could follow each other. So we have sort of a Twitter feed almost inside the application that worked really well. Um, that's on the on one of the products. 
On the other product, we we work better. The forum works better. Let's put it that way. We have a community forum. People are quite active there. Obviously, there is also a large social media following. We've got like Telegram groups, especially with regards to uh, our crypto offering. Uh, we have our own Bucks token, for example. Uh, we have one of the largest crypto offering of all regulated brokers, pretty much, because we, we own the full technology of that. And look, with that, I think people are extremely passionate, especially with regards to the utility and your own token. And yeah, that just goes so far that if you just look at, at Twitter, for example, you got you know already terms like uh, being boxish, right? Uh, meaning being bullish. Um, people creating NFTs uh, for about bucks and, and share that across their Twitter feeds and with, with other people on Twitter. So social media also helps. In the end, there's no one specific platform where the entire community is present. It's across multiple platforms, at least that's what we see. Um, I think that the most important thing is just to, to maintain that, that accessibility as management of the firm as well. Like interact with them, make yourself approachable, invite them for meetups, uh, you know, have community get-togethers that you organize for them to come over. We, we're doing multiple ones in Amsterdam, in London, for example. Obviously, with the whole COVID situation, we've not been able to do that as often as we want to, but now your restrictions are, well, getting lifted. So it's now getting a little bit more, more open again, and we definitely want to do that again. And it's just also a way in, in collecting good client feedback as well. So it's not just for, for, for them. It's also for us really, really good to maintain that strong relationship. You, you've obviously seen a lot of change with COVID as well because more and more people are getting involved and, and getting into trading. I know I personally am. I was always into, into trading slightly before COVID. Um, but during COVID, people started realizing, okay, I need to have something uh, for a rainy day i need to be thinking about my future i can just lose my job you know i need something coming in have you have you seen um people's mentality towards trading change a lot during covid oh massively look the the entire move towards investment products like i explained earlier was already happening before the whole pandemic but um you know during the pandemic people were sitting at home they had nothing to do. They were, well, you know, in lockdown. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, people were looking for avenues to spend their money. And I mean, getting started with investing was the best way to to basically still get get busy a little bit. So we saw a huge run. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, we had the whole GameStop hype, as you remember. Um, so that also, of course, accelerated things. So everything that we already thought was happening and everything that we saw happening already earlier before the pandemic just got into a, uh, a, a huge acceleration. And um, I think, you know, currently, if in comparison to that period, things are slowing down a little bit, uh, but it's still at a, a pace that is, well, I haven't seen before. Just before lockdown, actually, um Bucks acquired a company called Blockport. Um, I'd love to know how did how did that come about? Because I know that allowed you to go on and and launch Bucks Crypto, uh, which it was. So was that the initial plan from the outset um, when you first set your eyes on on Blockport? 
And I'd love to know just how you went about that, because there's always the the initial feel like someone reaches out to the uh, Blockport. Was was it was it you? Was it someone on your behalf? Was it a company on your behalf? I just love to know how that works. Yes, it's a, it's an interesting story, actually, Mark. I'll, uh, I'll I'll tell you what the story was. Blockport was actually one of the fastest growing. Um, uh, crypto platforms in the Netherlands. They did uh, the largest ICO in the Netherlands as well. They raised $17 million in, uh, in, in that ICO. Um, and um, they were building their entire platform. And this was all the way back in 2017. But I think you can remember what happened in early 2018. Uh, there was this huge crypto crash. And if you do an ICO, and for the listeners that are not aware of this, you raise Ethereum, so not actual fiat currency, right? So the 17 million I just mentioned was actually the value in Ethereum. Now, they, of course, spent quite a few millions on building out the platform and increasing the size of the team and everything. But when the crash happened, they didn't convert all their Ethereum into fiat currency. So they ran out of money before they were able to launch the platform. So they also were looking around in the market. We always, we've always been flirting with offering crypto as well, to be honest, because of course we are a trading firm uh, and we want to, of course, have, you know, at least exposure towards uh, innovative products. And crypto was definitely one of them. Uh, and we were already talking to multiple parties to see how we can, how we can do that. But one lesson I've learned over the years is that if you can acquire the underlying technology yourself, that's way more valuable than building an integration with a firm that does that for you. Um, because it just creates future value and it creates ownership of the value chain, which allows you to make rapid decisions without being dependent of a third party. And therefore, um, when we met the Blockboard guys and they told us their story, we said, look, why don't we acquire you guys give you guys a home to also further build out the product and let's launch Box Crypto together, right? So unfortunately, the name Blockport will then disappear, but at least, you know, you can do whatever you've dreamed of and we'll make sure we can make that happen. And that's what we did. So we launched Box Crypto. We've integrated Box Crypto now into our zero commission investing platform. So people can invest in cryptocurrencies against zero commission from the same intuitive and accessible platform where we offer zero commission cash equity and ETFs. Now, people think that's amazing. And with our Box token, our utility, we are, I think, one of the most innovative players in the entire European Union. Um, so we also have a unique position with that technology now. So I think it's uh, one of the best acquisitions we've done. And uh, roughly how long did it take from re- reaching out and talking to actually signing and closing the deal? Uh, well, you have to do a due diligence, right? So yeah. it, Which it probably takes, takes some most time. time. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you do the negotiation, obviously. And, uh, you know, in parallel, you do the due diligence. Um, I think, you know, the entire process took, took like uh, three months, three, four months, something like that. So before we end, what is next for books? Um, well, what's next, obviously, is we're going to uh, further increase our geographical footprint. Um, so there are a few countries, large countries in Europe where we're still not present. 
Um, so with that, I think I already clarify which countries these are. And considering the fact that we already have an office in London, like I explained, I'm London-based myself, and uh, we have an FCA license already. Uh, I think that I don't have to tell you which country is on the hit list. Um, but next to that, we also want to further deep dive into this innovation space. So there's so much more where that came from. So we just started with our crypto offering. I think we have one of the largest offering already, but we're going to expand that further, but also look at further utilities, DeFi solutions, all those kind of things to really provide people with a, a decent return on their investments. Uh, because in the end, that's where we believe the magic uh, is going to happen in the future. And we want to make sure our interests are aligned. If clients do well, we do well. And the only way to properly do that is to give people more handles to get a decent return. York, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And one question I want to ask you, which I ask all my guests, is what book have you read that has had the most impact on either you or, or the business on books? Yeah, the book that I but I loved, and uh, I still sometimes uh, open a few pages of that book. It's actually the hard thing about the hard things from Ben Horowitz. It's uh, an amazing book about entrepreneurship. Uh, it's an amazing book that shows hardship. It's a little bit romanticized, obviously. Uh, everything comes to a good end, um, but uh, reality is not always as as beautiful as that. But there are aspects in that book that every entrepreneur should, should read uh, because people don't realize sometimes that, you know, what you see is not what's actually happening behind the scenes. There's a lot of hard work and roller coasters and issues behind the scenes that are just creating a, a massively uh, difficult situation for many entrepreneurs and they go through it. Um, and that's what, the, uh, what that book really reflects. I think it, he explains it like no other. So can definitely recommend that book to anybody that uh, has an entrepreneurial angle to their business. You're not the first to recommend it, and I'm sure you won't be the last. Thank you so much again, York, for your time. Thank you for your time as well, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Before you go, could you please take a moment to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast? I'd really appreciate the support. And remember, our sponsor Uncapped offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales, no dilution or loss of control. Apply online, decision within 24 hours, make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue. Head to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN to find out more. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10, that's UKTN10.